Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. For the next few weeks, we're talking to women who've taken the racing world by storm. First out of the starting gate is someone who really needs no introduction. She's trained 135 Group 1 winners, was only the third woman and first Australian woman to train a Melbourne Cup winner and has even had a statue made in her honour. Gay Waterhouse, it's an absolute privilege to have you here as part of our Women in Racing series. So thank you for joining us. I want to go right back because when I first Sandra, started... stop immediately. Do not go too far back because you might find a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. But I do know you started life in ambition as a showgirl performer and have woken up as arguably the world's best female trainer. <laughs> well, I suppose someone asked me, what, an actor asked me, a comedian, uh, we were having lunch and he said, you know, what? how did that help you in your training? I said it gave me discipline that I would not have learnt otherwise. So being in the theatre in London for oh, three years and then when I came back to Australia, Sandra, it gave me training in voice, it gave me training in projecting my voice, which, of course, in people's eyes makes sees you as a bigger person because I'm not that tall. It gave me great confidence because, as you know, you've got to go in for the interviews, you've got to go in for the auditions, you've got to believe in yourself. So when I came back to Australia and eventually took out my licence, I believed totally in myself. Really, I didn't know if I could train. I'd been with my father all my life. I'd watched him train all my life. Uh, I'd been his assistant for the last 10 years before I got the licence, but I didn't know if I could train. But I believed in myself. I believed I would do it and I did it. You did it, but the hurdles were significant, enormous. I mean, I remember you... When I first started in journalism and that battle for you to get your licence, it was so much about you being a woman, wasn't it? Well, things have changed dramatically. You know, that's 30 years ago I've had a licence now and in 30 years it's gone upside down and gone a bit mad in my opinion. I'm not saying it was correct then. You know, I won a legal battle against the AJC, which were the uh, governing body of New South Wales racing, that I couldn't be seen as an appendage or as, you know, I couldn't be judged on my husband. So it became an act of parliament, you know, so it's it's wonderful. The thing's called the Waterhouse Act. So it's a great thing for we women in the workforce, which there are so many people, you know. But uh, I think you should be seen on your merits. I think, be it male or female, you should be seen on your merits. And you understand it perfectly because you're in, if I think I'm in a tough old world in racing, I would have to say that the television industry is far harder <laughs> and a lot more cutthroat. I don't know. I remember those battles with the ATC and I wondered where that inner strength came from because you were on 
course, you were determined to cross that finish line because you knew you had right on your side. But do you remember some days going home and thinking, am I ever going to win this battle? I'd come back from the races where clients of my father's would turn their, I'd walk up to the group and they'd literally turn their back on me. It was so humiliating and so you know, frustrating. And I'd go home to Rob and I'd just be in tears. I just said, look, I don't know if I can stand it. And Rob gave me my inner strength. He's always believed in me. He's never had any doubt that I could do it. If I said, Rob, I'm, I think, you know, I might climb Everest. He'd say, oh, that'd be great. I'll come with you. So he's been on the journey with me all my life, all my married life, which is now 40 years. It'll be 40 years next year. And uh, he's my total and complete inner strength. You know, he believes in me. I throw ideas at him. I blabber on when I come home, as I'm sure you do, Sandra, about ideas or things that are on your mind about your show or with me with the horses. And he absorbs it and he'll always give me a very, uh, very honest and a very objective opinion. And he said, no, he said, go for it. He said, you deserve it. You've been well trained. He said, you'll do a very good job. It was a battle royale, though, wasn't it? How long did it go on for in the end? It went for two years, and then when I got the licence, it was was so funny. Often the things you work so hard for all of a sudden seem to tumble in your lap out of sight, and uh, I got rung up by Ray Alexander, who was then acting uh, secretary of the AJC, and the AJC were the Australian Jockey Club, and they've since changed their title to um, Australian Turf Club and amalgamated with the STC. But, you know, it it was great. And uh, I wrote at the time a column in one of the papers and I had to give that up. And uh, I said to my dad, what licence should I apply for? He said, there's no licence except number one, Gay. He said, apply for number one. I said, but am I good enough to apply for number one? He said, Gay, pitch yourself at the top and you'll never look back. And I just followed his advice and I I got the licence and I didn't have a horse to train. Uh, And uh, I went, there was a sale on that day and I went to the sales and I bought two horses and a syndicator came up to me called Harry Lawton and he said, I've been watching you. He said, you're very marketable, very saleable. I said, oh, thanks, Harry. (laughs) He he said, I'll take that uh, horse that you bought, those horses you bought. And he said, I'll syndicate them. You won a great one that year, didn't you? Uh, I wanted my first, when I did start uh, racing my horses, the first horse I raced won, the first five horses I raced, and they went from winning a maiden at the provincials to the first Sunday race in town to a black type race, which was the uh, Gosford Gold Cup, all, all in, in my first. And then we went on to win the Metropolitan with Tiako Nick. I wonder, for someone that had a dream to be on stage but was brought up around horses, What is it about horses that you love? When it's in your backyard, so to speak, and it wasn't literally because I lived in an apartment at Potts Point and the only live things other than mum and dad in there were some chickens, which dad promptly suffocated by throwing his jumper on one morning when he was running out the door to go to the track. (laughs) Traumatised you? (laughs) Yes. A pussycat, which he got from the markets and brought home and it gave me ringworms all over me. (laughs) So having pets in the apartment were a bit of a no-no. The rabbit that did poo all over the floor and mum just went ballistic. Um, I used to go to the, the stables with him and I'd go... I'd go in the mornings, but sometimes before school, and he'd put me on the front of his pony called Cornflakes, and we'd ride out to the centre of Randwick, and 
you know, I just loved it. And then we'd go down to Coogee Beach. In those days, we could swim the horses at Coogee and we had little dinghies, little boats, and the boys would row them out with the horses on a lead swimming behind and I'd sit at the back of the boat watching them. So, you know, how can you not fall in love with? You're around and I had ponies and I was part of the Eastern Suburbs Pony Club and Mum got the most terrible hay fever from horses but, you know, loved her daughter, gave very much and take me to all these shows and pony club events. It was great, Sandra. It was really fun. But you would have known, watching your dad, that it was a hard life and it required intense discipline. Well, you're not aware of that when you're a child. You're, you're aware of a, a very strong, dominant, um, larger-than-life man. My father wasn't very tall, but he had the most electric blue eyes and he had the most radiating and attractive personality. And he became a phenomenon in racing. He took out uh, 33 consecutive premierships. He broke five Commonwealth records. He came from the humble beginnings where they had lived on a dirt floor in Gilgowie uh, with something like seven children, seven siblings. So he came from very impoverished circumstances and became the sort of most dominant sports star in Australia. You know, he, he was fantastic. So I used to sit opposite my dad as I'm sitting opposite you now. And he'd over breakfast be talking to Robert Askin, who was the then Premier of New South Wales, or Bob Hawke, all the leading business people, because they're all punters, and they're all, all mad racing people. And lots of them had horses in our stable. And Dad would be talking to all these people, so it washed over me, you know, that this was the norm. I thought every trainer did that. I didn't realise that Dad was an absolute megastar and so exceptional. There's something marvellous about racing, isn't it, insofar as it's really a great leveller. Everyone from all walks of life can fall in love with racing, whether it's to win money or they actually love watching the sport of kings. They certainly do. They have the expression, all are equal above and below the turf. And you love racing and your husband, and we were at Ascot together this year. And look, that's a, a different experience altogether. But there's a perfect example of someone who could take a picnic and not have really any money at all and just sit with a, a beer and a sandwich and enjoy the racetrack and the races. Or someone could be up in the royal box with the, Her Majesty the Queen. There's so many levels of racing, and Australia's probably even more accessible, you know, because you, to own a, a horse in Australia is not an arm and a leg. I trained for a group of owners and the lady came up to me when I was up at Coffs Harbour a while back and she said, I've got a share in a horse with you. I said, oh, that's nice. What's its name? She said, oh, not a royal doubt. Well, I knew that she was one of a thousand people in that horse, basically really nameless and faceless, but they don't know that. And when she came to talk to me, that was her horse. So it's, it's very nice. How many horses do you have in your stable at the moment? About 140. And that's probably the biggest stables in Australia. It's probably not the biggest, but it's, it's, it's quite the norm. Four or five years ago, you decided to branch out and bring Adrian Bott in and join forces with him and, and share some of those training duties. Why did you choose Adrian? Because he's the best. He was a star. I'd known Adrian when he was a child because we trained for his father, Tony Bott. When he came on board with me, he did a, a course called the Godolphin Flying Start. They only take 12 people a year from around the world. And Adrian was one of those chosen to do Sheikh Mohammed's course. And it gives them uh, skills in everything from training to bloodstock management. And it's a total finishing school for anyone who wants to be in horse racing. So Adrian did that. And then he, funnily enough, was a steward for about six months. And then he came and worked with me. And he worked with me for four years. And every time I'd throw the ball, he'd catch it and run with it. He, had a, a, he has a lovely um, sensitivity, which is essential around animals. 
And he came, probably the final straw is, he came with the person who could buy the business. I sold my business two and a half years ago, Sandra. That doesn't mean Gay sold to walk away. It meant that Gay could free herself up from the running of, imagine running, you know, a big television station or horse training staff. I didn't have to worry about the wages. That was his baby. I didn't have to worry about payments. I could just worry about one thing, which was training the horses, which is what I love. Would have been a big decision. How long did it take you to come to that? Not that long. I'd made up my mind probably the year before that I was going to take on someone. I just had to find the right person. And Adrian kept ticking all the boxes. And he came to me and he said, if I can buy the business, would you sell it to me? And I said, yes. Has it changed your life? No, absolutely. Firstly, your mind is different. You know that you have a partner that you can share the load with. And there is a lot of load, you know. To every horse, if there's a 1,000 people in that horse, you know, there might be 10 of 20 or or how many people in a horse. They all have to be spoken to. You have to concentrate on each of the horses. And the horses range from babies, like having a little baby in your house, up to an older horse, like having an older person. And each of them have different needs. And Adrian can go to the races and I can stay home and mind the shop. Well, see, that's what Dad did. Dad used to stay at home and keep an eye on the stables and the workings of it. And I'd go off to the races. So it's nice to be able to have that relationship as I was able to have with my dad. I suspect a lot of people don't understand the rigour and pressure of the syndicates and the owners for someone such as a trainer. Everyone would perceive that your main focus is on the track and the success of the horses. Of course, that's your primary focus. But servicing all those syndicates and all those owners is a full-time job in itself. It's huge. And in Australia, we have more syndicators than anyone else. And they take it on board, not only to sell down their horse that they choose or the trainer might choose, but they then look after the owners. They answer their questions, this, that, the other. But they have to come to us and get what we think about the horse and where we're planning to go. But of course, with day and age of text and email and Facebook and da, 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 there is so much information. Even Dr. Google on horses, you know, Vet Google, I had an owner write to me and tell me how he thought I should do X, Y, Z with the horse. Then I looked at the document and I thought, that name looks familiar. So I rang the vet up and I said to the veterinarian, this piece that the owner sent me, what do I, how do I answer him? I knew how to handle the horse, but I thought I want to answer it and be correct and help the person. He said, oh, I wrote that 20 years ago. Do you see what I mean? Things have moved on, but because it was in Dr. Google, it was taken that it must be, you know, from the Lord's mouth, so to speak. So walk me through the labour intensity of servicing the syndicates. What sort of events do you have to engage in? What sort of engagement at a communications level is involved with keeping all of the owners up to speed with track work, however many mornings a week, race meetings, country, metropolitan. I mean, this is 24-7. It is, Sandra. And you have to be accessible. And I say I'm the text queen. You know, you only have to text me and you'll get an answer. It means that we have to be very much on the forefoot. We have to give out information. So we give out videos and you know, lots of information that people can see their horse and this, that and the other. We call a weekly track flash, which is basically from the horse's mouth because we scribe what the jockey has said about the horse and then our thoughts on it. You know, it's very labour intensive. There's a lot happening behind the scene. No different to a television station. A lot happens behind the scene before you go to air. It's exactly the same. I often liken being an actress to being a horse trainer because of all the rehearsals that go on behind when you're in the the dark or whatever it is. What's the expression? Anyway, it's very similar. So the alarm goes off every day at 2.30 in the morning. 
why do I get up so early? Well, the training in Australia takes place quite early in the morning for a couple of reasons. We live in a very hot, humid environment and the horses dehydrate very quickly. So it's best to walk, work them in the cool of the morning so they can get back to the stables and rest and cool down. Secondly, the workforce, which most of them are casuals and many of them are students that can only work 20 hours in another job. So you only have a, your workforce for certain hours and the horses have to be walked and they have to be transported from one place to another. They have to be fed. Stables have to be mucked out. You know, it's a lot of labour. It's a labour-intensive business. And then, of course, the jockeys come and they have to go off to maybe Wagga today or Gosford or wherever the races are, so they've got to get going early. And then the final thing is that the track closes at, at 8.30. Boom, it closes. So you have to work. I think at Randwick there are 650 horses they have to be walked between when the track opens at 4 till 8.30. So it's a logistics, a big logistics thing. And I have to talk to Adrian in the morning if there are any changes. The foreman all texts in different things, telling you about the horses or ring in and ask. And then after we've gathered all that information in our heads, uh, you know, we may make changes to the list and say, look, maybe that horse shouldn't work today or maybe it shouldn't work with that horse. It should do something else. And then you're lining it up and working out which races you're going to target for that specific oh, that's horse. After, that's after the training. At four o'clock kickoff, the horses start working and some of them are just trotting and cantering and some have to go to the pool before they come out because they might tie up and they need a bit of loosening up. The, the gallops are going boom, boom at Randwick or Flemington, wherever it might be. It's very full on. And uh, at about... Seven o'clock, I pull up stumps. I say, see you later, alligator, to Adrian. You can carry on with this. And I head home and have a little rest. And then I, after about an hour, get up again, have some breakfast and start my day again. I've owned not much more than a fetlock ever. <laughs> That's a large amount of a horse, may I say, Sandra. Is it? Yes. I would sooner have the front fetlock than the back one because it gets over the winning post quicker. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, it didn't get over too many winning posts, unfortunately, but... We used to hang and waiting for the trainer's video message, mm. video of that horse doing its track work and then the trainer's assessment and then, you know, a couple of days later we'd get an update on where he or she was targeted to run. And then, of course, you'd wait for that race and then you'd want to watch that race and see how it went and then you'd want the jockeys and the trainer's assessment straight after. So as a, a minor syndicate owner and, and literally two cents worth, I can't imagine running a stable, how much that communication effort must take. The world of social media has changed a lot for everyone. Has it helped your industry? I think it's helped us hugely. And, you know, people, as you said, you used to watch the audio visual of the trainer. We're exactly the same. You know, Dad was the king of communication. We're going back, you know, to when the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were no mobiles, no texts, no videos, none of that. No email. Nothing. And so my father would come home at a quarter to seven every morning, sit himself down at the telephone before mum put the breakfast on the table and he would be on the phone. And he would spend about no more than three minutes. By the time the breakfast arrived, about half an hour later, I've spoken to many, many owners. So they all knew he would speak to the press. All the press knew where Tullock Lodge was going and TJ's horses were going. He was the king of communication before it was even thought of. And with that, people liked it. They liked to know, oh, is that what Tommy thinks? They can go to the pub and say, oh, look, my trainer rang me this morning. No different to now. You go down the, not saying you'll go down the pub, Sandra, but, you know, you might. might. <laughs> you might. <laughs> you might. Um, but, you know, you might go to lunch with the girls and say, oh, look, this is what so-and-so sent me. Look at the horse, you know. And people are really interested. They're genuinely interested. You've mentioned we spent a little bit of time together at Royal Ascot and I spent a bit of time with your son. 
And he's an impressive young man. He always says the greatest gift my mother ever gave me was discipline. And while I hated it as a young man, it has served me incredibly well. Yes, he often says that. And I I think in many ways it was. You know, Rob's a very kind and laissez-faire sort of person and often kick him under the table with the grandchildren and say, tell them to do such and such. (laughs) He would never say that. You know, he'd flow along. And it was so funny, one time we were on a boat having a holiday and my parents and my mother was very strict and Tom had done something very naughty, heaven knows what, and mum said, give him a smack. What a dreadful boy, what a dreadful child. So Rob put him over in his lap, but he didn't show mum that he had one hand there and then the other hand slapping it down like that. So, of course, it looked like he was smacking Tom on the bottom, but he was just smacking his own so. hand. And when mum found out, oh, she was so cross. But... um I used to think to myself, at the end of the day, you give them one bite of the cherry, one chance in life to be successful. And if they can't manage their their life and be happy in those, their bodies, in their self, they won't do well. And look, in this day and age where drugs are so prevalent and discipline is a thing of the past, I think that people who have discipline and can live a, some sort of sensible life have a much greater edge over the others. When you look at your training success, 135 Group 1 winners, I hope I'm correct there, the second woman only to train a Melbourne Cup winner, 2013. But the first wasn't allowed to train in her her name. And went one was in that the Kiwi? Husband's. There was a Kiwi lady, uh, uh, Sheila, uh, Sheila Laxon. Yes. Uh, there was another lady before that that uh, won the Cup but in her husband's name, even though she was the trainer, not the husband. And then there was Gay. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How important was it to you to win a Melbourne Cup? Well, I like the Melbourne Cup. I like training stayers, Sandra. I like the idea of having a horse run over a distance because people like to watch those races. They like to watch those long-distance races because you're engaging with people, watching and talking and yelling and screaming as the horse goes around for two miles, 3,200 metres. And it is the one race that if you go overseas, they all have heard of the Melbourne Cup. So over a period of 30 years, I've attempted to win the Cup and I have a runner many years. You know, I nearly always have a runner in it and we'd run second a few times and third and fourth and fifth and sixth, but I hadn't won it. And when we were in Newmarket uh, six years ago, I'd been looking for the Cup horse and couldn't find it. I'd been to France and we'd gone through the stables there and there was nothing. And we were at, at Newmarket at the July course and this horse was walking around and I said to Rob, wow, I said, he's so sexy, he's so beautiful, that And we made an offer, a very substantial offer, straight after he won that day. And the owner said, no, I'm taking him to the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. He said, no. So he knocked that on the head. So we kept coming back to him because he didn't win the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, which is one of the great races in France. And uh, he was then on the market again. And uh, he was very competitive. And there were several other trainers in Australia trying to buy Ferrente. Anyway, eventually our bid got him. We brought him back to Australia. And in his first race ever in Australia, he left the quarantine at, at Werribee, 
floated to Flemington, ran in the Melbourne Cup, ran second and paid his purchase price in the one go. And so it was all uphill after that. It was funny. It was a phenomenal course. Do you remember the day? Oh, vividly. It was so funny because on the day of the Cup, we were right in the betting and I said to Rob, I don't think I can go to the races. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't think I can face all those green men. You know, what happens if I fail? What happens if he doesn't win? What do I say to all those people that, you know, Mr and Mrs Everidge sort of said, oh, gay, this is your cup, you know, oh, this is your moment. And um, he said, just go and win it, gay, don't worry about it. And, of course, it's history now. He did win it. It was just wonderful. Rob's had a statue made of me with the cup. Has he? Yes. It's hysterical. It's about 35 feet high. It's huge. (laughs) Where is it? Well, it's still in England being finished, but it's me holding the cup at top, you know. It's very triumphant. It's marvellous. All Australians are in love with the Melbourne Cup. Is it as big outside of Australia? Do you think the Europeans appreciate the Melbourne Cup the way we do? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's a handicap race probably a quality handicap now. It used to be the the best performed horse carried the top weight, which could be considerable weight 30 years ago or longer, to write down to be on the really lightweight. But they've compressed the weights over the last 10 years, which I think has been a great shame for the cup. But it's been very well promoted since the internationals came to Australia. And the VRC worked tirelessly from literally two weeks after the cup is run, which is the first Tuesday in November, tirelessly through the year, taking that cup all around the world. And they take it, and as you saw when you presented on television the other day, that I was at Kalani School, Aid Mossman, with the Melbourne Cup. So that was me as an ambassador going to a local school. I go all over Australia, they go all over the world at different places, and they say this is a cup and they tell the people about the history of it. So they work tirelessly, so they deserve all the, all the success they get. When you fly into Melbourne, leading up to the Cup, the flags are flying everywhere and you say, oh, I'm coming to a very special occasion. What is it? And then you see pictures of horses everywhere. You know, it's in your face. You're very aware of it. And no other state in Australia publicises their number one race like they do. Now, the VRC do it exceptionally well. And Victoria is in love with racing, not just because of the racing, but also what it brings to the economy. Oh, so it's the greatest money earner over that week or 10 days that cup week is unbelievable. You go for everything, accommodation, food, a number of hats and dresses and suits and everything, let alone the people that have to be employed on those race days. It's fantastic. It's, it's fabulous. What do you make of the competition that's emerged between New South Wales racing and Victorian racing with the introduction of the Everest and now the Eagle? Competition's good. So the answer to that question is it's good. I think the saddest thing is that they have lost sight of the other races the, the other group races being, you know, you could run in the Breeders' Plate in Sydney, which is the leading two-year-old race to the Golden Slipper, and you run for pittance. You should be running for maybe 500,000. But all this money goes into these big races and not enough into the other group races. You know, a maiden or a restricted race on a Saturday is sometimes worth more than the listed race of the day. Hello? You know, we're lost sight a little bit of, you know, you must pitch your your group races accordingly so there's a stepping stone to where you really want to go. But are you confident and hopeful about the future for racing in New South Wales given what's arguably a deliberate attempt to take on the VRC? Oh, I think so. I think racing in Australia is extremely strong and there's been a real switch and change in Australia. A lot of the country tracks have been centralised, so you've lost a lot of the smaller tracks, which means that the local person could go to their local racetrack, now have to trek to the racetrack, so that stops people going. 
I think it could be better publicised with young people. I think I think in Victoria they're very into nurturing their at root level, you know, at ground root level. I think that's very important. I read a really lovely piece the other day from Ray Thomas, who we all adore, who's so passionate about racing and, and clearly a, a massive fan of yours. He dared to mention the R word to you, retire. <laughs> well, we could both fall into that bucket because we've <laughs> both been treading the boards, so to speak, But I think that you need people who know their industry. You live and breathe your industry. You know it intimately and you do it brilliantly. And I feel that I know my industry backwards, but I think that there's a lot I can still learn. And things are changing rapidly, as I'm sure it is in the television industry. And you have to keep a pace. And that's why Adrian has joined forces with me. Retire is not a word that I resent the word. I think it's just an ugly word and it um, accelerates the end. I mean, I why would I ever want to stop doing something I love? I gather you feel the same. Well, I say to people, if you retire, you're probably dead in seven years. So I don't plan being dead in seven years. You know, racing, you can do it all different. You don't have to be uh, up at the crack of dawn. You know, there's lots of different areas you could work in racing, even in the stable life. So, you know, my father was at the stables the day he died, walking around the stables and enjoying what, what he'd built and what he loved. A big part of racing is fashion, and you've always been sartorially splendid, regally turned out from the day I first saw you at the track. You've taken great pride in your appearance. It's a big part of your presentation when you go to the races. Yes, I do. I love I love fashion. I, I don't know if it's the actress in me or whatever it is, but I like dressing up uh, and uh, I like to look nice. And I say to people, if someone's bought a horse with me and they've spent no matter small dollar or large dollar, when they go to the races, they would like to be able to show their trainer off. You know, when they introduce you, they don't look me looking scruffy. I, they don't want me looking like the strapper. They want to say, there's the boss. Many a time, the wives or girlfriends will say, oh, look, will I wear a hat? And the husband or boyfriend will say, oh, well, gay, I'll have one on. So yes. You know, it's a wonderful place, the races. Women can dress up and in this boring, 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 boring age of everyone looking equal and everyone looking so plain and boring, you can go to the races, you can wear colour. I mean, you look divine. Uh, I loved your yellow outfit. <laughs> and, and it was fabulous. It was absolutely, you know, rock starish. But wow, you wear that you. somewhere else and someone says, oh, Sandra, it's not a bit bright, you know. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you wear it to the races and they say, oh, I adore the outfit. It's fun. It's lovely. It is fun. Let's go back to Royal Ascot for a minute. It was extraordinary seeing the monarch in a horse-drawn carriage down the straight every day. But when I talk to a lot of people in in London, there is a genuine fear that when the Queen passes, the sport of racing in the UK is going to lose its greatest supporter. Of course, she's a great supporter and owns many mares and she also has interests in horses and has all her life, as her mother did before her. But I don't think it will stop there because she she has a legacy with her family and they all go racing. You know, Princess Anne is a, a wonderful equestrian. I would imagine Prince Charles would very much love to carry on a great legacy his mother has started and, and continues to, to carry on. And, you know, they say that Prince Charles's beautiful wife, Camilla, is a very keen racing lady. So, you know, it will continue. That's one thing I, I don't think people have to worry about. In Australia, Katie Page and Queen Anne's daughter, Zara Tyndall, have done a lot to elevate the image of women in racing. How important is that, do you think, to the future of racing? I think it's great because women, uh, many of which pull a very good income, and so they can afford to race horses and to be involved with racing. Once it was just a completely man's sport because the man was the bread and butter earner, whereas now women have got a disposable income and they like to go and spend it, and it might be at the races. It's great. I think it's fabulous. 
we train for a number of ladies-only syndicates, not being sexist, but, you know, and they're great fun. They, 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 we really do. And, and Adrian's wife, Jess, just had one fun, such fun the other day. They had the naming of the girls-only horse and they had it in a, like, you know, you see nowadays when people have baby showers and they burst the balloon and it all came down the name and it was just so cute. Well, women in racing, um, I don't think we've seen any greater surge since Michelle Payne took out the Melbourne Cup. What do you think that did for women in racing? I think it was a great thing because first it was a young person and she, of course, they made a film about it. So that shows you the effect it had. No, I, I think it was great. And she's since become a trainer and, and, and doing very well. But we remember that interview when she won. Yes, I do. It was quite unusual. Well, and, and also reflected the hard road she'd had in being Very taken seriously as a young female jockey. You had the same struggles as a young woman trainer. Well, yes and no. We had different struggles. Michelle's biggest struggle was that her father had to look after and educate and bring up was it, uh, 12 children without his wife. Uh, and I would think that would be huge huge thing to have to be able to manage and the kids to all grow up so well and so well adjusted and I think it's a great credit to the father and to the kids. But she really referred to the fact it was hard to get trainers to take her seriously and give her a winning ride. It's difficult. It's a very competitive world. You know, jockeys come in and out of form all the time, Sandra. If you're riding in form, they all want you. Look at Linda Meach down in Melbourne now, took out the premiership. You know, she's hot the trot. You want to have her on your horse if she's not riding as well, you don't want to have her on your horse, male or female. I don't think it makes much difference with the sex there as a trainer in employing jockeys. You don't see gender as an issue when it, when it comes to choosing a jockey? As long as they're riding well, that's all you're looking for. Because when they're out of form, believe me, they're like a smelly sock. I didn't realise jockeys go in and out of form as much as the horses do, I gather. More so. They've got to be mentally strong. They've got to, when the jockey's riding well, he'll walk on water. But it's no different to a stable. When a stable's firing, the maiden that couldn't win a maiden in a million years wins a group race. You know what I mean? Confidence is a massive thing with sports people. Massive. But it's those symbolic moments of, say, Michelle Payne winning a Melbourne Cup that gives young pony club riders the dream and the reality that it is possible. They're significant milestones, aren't they? Well, they are. And Australia's probably one of the few countries in the world that people can get a go, be it Michelle winning the Melbourne Cup, her chance of doing that maybe in England or France would be probably non-existent. Even though there are lady jockeys there, they're not given the same rides. In Australia, it's very, you know, open and equal. Jamie Carr, one of Australia's leading jockeys, was quoted uh, just recently as saying that British racing is largely backward when it comes to the way it treats women jockeys. There's talk of giving a weight allowance to horses ridden by women in that country. I think that's an insult. The women should stand up and say, we don't need a weight allowance, we're too damn good. That's what I'd say. I can't bear when people get an unfair advantage. Getting weight allowances to me is an unfair advantage. Why can't they ride equally with the men? Is there anything left in racing you want to do? There's always races you want to win. You know, I haven't won a Cox Plate. I would love to win that. It's a very sexy race, beautiful race. Why is it sexy? Well, it's run on a very unusual track. It's run on a saucer, you know, like a, a little one of those cyclist courses. Uh, it's it's banked in a certain way and with a, a certain type of camber and a certain type of turf. When you're there, you're right on top of the horse. I mean, it's literally in your face. They pack, I don't know how many, 30, 40, in what really fits about 15,000 people. And it's the premier weight for age race in Australasia. And weight for age races are taken very seriously overseas. So yeah, I would love to win that. Hopefully one year I'll have a horse good enough or Adrian and I will have a horse good enough. 
to win in Royal Ascot would be a wonderful thing. I've only taken two horses. The first one, the jockey got lost. The jockey got lost? <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, just, uh, he went one way, so to speak, and <laughs> the rest of the team went the other. But he did make it to the track. He made it to the track, very much so. And um, the next one was Wanjener, who stands at stud now, and he ran fifth in the race there, the, the sprint race. But it's a wonderful thing. It was so funny because when uh, I had a horse called Bentley Biscuit, and this is a long time ago, and there was a horse called um, Takeover Target, and Joe, the cab driver, trained Takeover Target. When he won at Ascot and I ran at the other end of the field, I said to Joe, now how can the taxi driver win the group one here and the famous trainer run last? How do you, how do, you do it? He said, oh, it's simple, gay. I just had the horse well prepared back home and I just put it on the plane and landed here and ran it the next week. I said, thank you. You learn something all the time. I'll never forget Joe telling me that. He was marvellous. He had a wonderful way with his horse. You know, every industry is full of layers and there's minutiae in technology and jargon. And when I talk to people about racing and if they've never had an exposure to it, there's kind of this blank stare that they just don't understand. And I try in my lame way to sort of explain, you remember athletics as a kid, you know, you're either a sprinter or a distance runner. I mean, I never wanted to run the 400. I was a sprinter, let alone cross country. Forget it. And racing's kind of similar to that in a very simplistic way. But you've added this whole other layer, which is all the tracks are different. And then if you run in New South Wales, they run one way. If you run in Victoria, they run another way. So many layers. So many layers. And of course, in our stable, we have jumping horses as well. So you can go to... um Casterton or these different really south of the border tracks uh, and uh, they're wonderful you know they're real grassroots racing you know what we go to the carnival at Warrnambool every year down near Port Ferry and it's just lovely and the jumping and the racing are really marvellous and yeah thousands of people turn up and you know with their Wellingtons on and because it's usually quite cold and wet and it's just wonderful grassroots racing and that's what you want you know it's nice not to lose that. The trick for being a great trainer is finding the right horse for the right track, I presume? Well, not even so much for the right track, but finding the right horse. And I start my sales inspection. I start looking at yearlings, which are horses that are 18 months old in October in Victoria. And I do all the studs there. And then I come up to New South Wales and do all the studs here. Then I go on to Queensland and look at quite a number of studs there. So by the time I get to the first sale, which is the sale that uh, Jerry Harvey and Katie Page as their sale, Magic Millions in January, I've seen about three quarters of the catalogue, which is about 1,100, 1,200 horses. And I can then look at them again and it's good. Uh, and finding the right horse like Piero and Vancouver, Sebring, Forente in England. Yeah, I'm a great believer in being at the right place at the right time. You know, timing's everything with acting or with horses. Do you believe the Magic Millions is now the premier horse sale in the country? Well, that's debatable. They're two very big uh, companies and they're very aware of being the leading sales company, Magic Millions. Um, I think that the horses suit the different sales. And as a trainer, you've got to be at them all because who's to say that your champion mightn't be at the Sydney Classic or the Melbourne Premier? You know, who's to say it mightn't be over in Adelaide at their sale there? You know, you've got to be at those sales. What do you look for in a great horse? An athlete. So I look at all the horses. I watch them walk and move. Sometimes I chase them around paddocks. I look for horses that are athletic. I look for a horse that's got a lovely face. I look for a horse that's got range and, and length. I look for something that with filly that's got a lovely head because one day she'll be a mother and she'll throw that in the foal. 
I just use my eyes and my senses to say, you know, there's something about that horse I really like. And then I look at the page and one, it'll tell me how much. And secondly, <laughs> are there sires that, that our owners might find acceptable? Do you ever find a horse that won't run one way? Some are better one way than others. Are there ever any horses that you won't take to Victoria because they generally race in New South Wales? I've taken a couple down there that can't seem to get their act together going the reverse way and so we just ship them back to New South Wales. Sometimes it just doesn't work. You So you've got to remember, you're playing tennis with your right arm and then all of a sudden they say, all right, we're going to the grand final, you're going to play with your left arm. Hello? It's too hard. So horses are all the time training one way in New South Wales and another way in Victoria. It's very hard to get that other diagonal to develop the same way. Why can't you just run them the other way at Randwick at training? Well, they only have one day a week that they and it's only recently that they do a reverse way, which is a Wednesday. How did that come about? It's like the railway gauges, isn't it, you know? Uh, I think if they want the horse to be seasoned for the Oaks, the Derby, the races in Melbourne, they should get them down to Melbourne, get used to the way that they're training down to the conditions. Walk us through your Derby Day ambitions and Melbourne Cup. Um, the Derby Day, we've got a nice horse called Echo Lad down there, homebred by a, an owner uh, of ours, uh, and that would be nice. And we've got a couple that are trying to qualify for the Oaks and the Derby. Melbourne Cup, there are two in particular I like. Hush writer who completely blotted his copybook on Saturday, and I had a severe talk with him the next day. And then the other horse, a horse called Wolf, and they're both Japanese bred horses, and they're lovely stayers. The dream, you know, that they can be competitive on the first Tuesday in November. A reality is, could they win it? You've had enormous success, Gay Waterhouse, and you are a joy to watch on the track and off. We wish you every success this spring carnival, and uh, we can't wait to see you in the winner's circle. Thank you, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. For news, sport and entertainment stories with a difference, 10 Daily has it all covered. 10daily.com.au Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.